Okay, good morning everyone. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in on conversations. Apologies, please do pick all of those conversations back up uh, at coffee time. As Chance was saying, uh, this, this week has been an eventful week in the Farrell household. Um, we spent seven nights sleeping on the floor. It's not because Laura fell out with me and turfed me out of bed or anything like that, although that could happen uh, as well. Um, we did it because uh, in Stand By Me, the organization I work for, uh, we started this challenge, sounded so brilliant on paper, called February on the Floor. Now, it's not a whole month. The whole month would be insane. We just decided that we would do seven nights in a row. So uh, last Saturday night, we threw our pillow down uh, on the floor. I grabbed a sleeping bag because it's just like camping. Uh, Laura grabbed a, a duvet and we slept for the last seven nights on the floor. Uh, the hope was to try and help transform the lives of kids uh, just like Gemachu. I was out in Ethiopia, got back about three weeks ago just uh, after Christmas, traveled out there. And Gemachu was one of the kids uh, that I met when I was out in Bokaji. It's about my 11th, 12th trip to Bokaji in the last number of years, but uh, every time I go, every time I come back, I always find there's something that just, something that grabs you, there's something that strikes you. You think you could almost be fooled into thinking that you've seen it all, and, and yet for me, it was, it was Gemachu's story this time. Uh, I walked uh, with Gemachu up into the middle of the town. Some of you have been in Bokaji before in round the market. There's some houses built around there and Gemachu had invited me to come and see his house. And so we walked down this little narrow alleyway between some of the houses out into what I thought uh, was wasteland. I couldn't really understand why he had brought me here. And then he said these words. He said, that's my house. Uh, and he pointed, he pointed at this. Um, and whenever I got home from Ethiopia, as is often the case, Karis, my daughter, she sits down, grabs my phone, starts flicking through photographs to see, well, what's daddy been up to while he's been away? And she got to this photograph and she stopped and she said, daddy, what's that? And I said, well, pet, that's, that's Gamachu's house. And she summed it up perfectly. She said, don't be silly, daddy. No one could live there. And I was like, that that's it, that's it, you get it, you're five, you get it. That shouldn't be the norm. And so in Stand By Me, we've started uh, this challenge over the month of February. We are now thankfully uh, at the end of it to try and turn uh, a little house into a little bit more of a home by giving up our beds and the hope that we can provide beds for other kids. And three weeks ago, Gemachu, he got uh, his first ever bed. He now sleeps on a proper mattress, has pillows and blankets, all of those things, an incredible, incredible blessing. Uh, I say all of that with two things in mind. One is to say thank you. Uh, I know that many of you here in church, we're an incredibly generous church, uh, and you have given and you've supported us. Uh, we set out this week hoping to raise money for four beds. That's like 500 pounds, something like that. And Laura and I had agreed, we're like, look, we'll probably not raise that. So we'll put in two. And if other people put in two, brilliant. Uh, last night, we sat and we watched as that clicked over a thousand 500 pounds, 10 beds uh, for kids like Gamachi. And, and that's not to do, it's not to do with us. It's just, it gives that opportunity for people to be generous. And it's what we do well in Northern Ireland. And it's what we should do well uh, with as the church. And I also say it because seven nights sleeping on the floor in a row is an awful way to prepare for speaking on a Sunday morning. Uh, so if I gravitate a lot towards my notes this morning, uh, you will understand why. Uh, let's jump in. One uh, of the biggest challenges for us as followers of Jesus is probably the battle between the story we tell ourselves 
and the story we find ourselves in. I think that's one of the big struggles because we're all living life in, in one direction, moving forward, constantly trying to figure out what this life of faith looks like. And the challenge for us is to position our lives in such a way that our focus is continually on Jesus. That in every decision we make and every day that we live, that we're looking for those opportunities to live out the values of the kingdom of God. And as we've been thinking over the last number of weeks, we want to be people, we want to be a church with a kingdom impact. And so we center our lives daily on Jesus. And yet the reality is if we're not listening for the voice of God, we can fool ourselves by becoming the voice of God in our own lives. We can start to believe what we tell ourselves. We start to believe the narrative of life that we want uh, to follow. We can convince ourselves that our choices are God's choices, that our actions are God's intentions. And so the huge challenge for us is coming back daily and weekly as we gather together and as we study God's word at home to, to bring ourselves back to Jesus, to go, what is it that you want for us? What does this look like? And one of the things that we're going to think about this morning is this principle of generosity. This principle of what we have is, is here to be given away. Uh, I was really challenged by this. Um, last year, whenever I was out with some of the folks here in church in Bokaji, uh, I then left the team and headed off to Dembodolo, which was brilliant, another town that we work in spent seven or eight days there and, and traveled back and traveled back by myself. Uh, one of the nice things of getting to travel a little bit is you clock up these wonderful little things called air miles that you just tuck away and tuck away and tuck away and you think I'll never get to use them. And, and as I was coming back last Easter on my own, I thought, well, I'll just have a look because I'd never use air miles when I have a team with me. Could you imagine? Guys enjoy economy. I'm just... Way up the front here to business. So, so I was on my own, so I thought, I wonder, I'm close to being there. And as I looked, I was just over the line. I just enough. And so I arrived at the airport and I said, look, is there any chance? Is there a seat? And they said, yes, of course. And, and so I flew home in luxurious style, smelling very much like I'd been in Ethiopia for two weeks, not washing, but flew home in luxurious style. And then whenever I got home and got into the office just out of curiosity a week later I decided to log into my little air miles account and I looked and they hadn't deducted a thing <laughs> I was like yes God provides I was like this is this is amazing. So then my next trip out to Ethiopia was, uh, well, I was out with one other person there in November, so I definitely couldn't use them then because that'd be really, really rude. But then on this last team, I thought, you know what? They're sitting there. They're going to expire. This, this is for me. And so a few days before I headed off, I, I phoned Ethiopian Airlines. It's like, oh, any chance of using some of my air, my air miles? And they're like, yeah, no problem, no problem. And so then I had to go home and practice. I had to practice the look of surprise. Because I thought, I can't just rock up and turn up at the business class counter and be like, that's me. I had to go in through economy. And then I had to stand and have them correct me and go, oh, sir, you're actually in business class today. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> me? Whoever would have known? And, and yet then we had this, this slight dilemma on the way back up the road. One of the guys who was on the team with me uh, was, I say, a little bit sick. That's probably softening the language a little bit. He was not feeling well at all. The whole way up the road, I just knew there was this nagging thought in my head going, this is not for you. <laughs> this ticket is not yours. Those air miles weren't left in your account so you could live in more luxury. Do the right 
thing. And so as we stood uh, on the bus, as we traveled out towards the plane, I turned around to the guy and I went, you are now Johnny Farrell. And we swapped tickets and he took my seat. And, and so we have this sense of it would be so easy to convince ourselves that these things all happen for us. But actually they all happen for us to have an impact on others. They happen so that we can reach out and show the world that we love and that we care, and not just that we love and that we care, but that God loves and that God cares. What we have in our hands is, is never simply for us. It's about the kingdom. It's about impact. And I guess for us where we excel as Western, educated, kind of linear thinkers is, is we really are driven by this sense of, okay, so, so tell me what to do. Give me the instructions and, and we'll go from there. What is it that is required of me? And yet it's into that that God says, no, 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 I want to give you relationship because it's that relationship that is going to bring about the sort of transformation that I want to see. It's relationship that becomes the transforming force in our lives. And so when we give our lives to Jesus, his spirit begins to work in us and to shape us right through to our daily decisions so that we can play our part in what he is doing in shaping and transforming the world. And that's, that's the journey that we've been exploring over the last number of weeks as we've looked at, at the book of Acts. We haven't looked at this book just simply to, to chart out the beginnings of the church as a kind of historical exercise. We're looking at this in the hope that as we explore what God was doing in the early church in the beginning, that he would begin something new in us that it would begin something fresh in us, that we would start to take on those same hallmarks of those people that took this message from an upper room where a small group of, of followers of Jesus were locked away in fear of what might happen to being people who would run to the far corners of the world so that people could encounter this message of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And we can't sit down and do it, but it would be incredible if we could because at some stage someone told you about Jesus. And at some stage, someone told that person about Jesus, and it goes back, and it goes back, and it goes back. It's this kingdom family tree that when we can chart it the whole way back, it goes back to an upper room. It goes back to people who encountered the risen Jesus. It goes back to people who were filled with the Spirit at Pentecost, and then went out and filled the world with this message of love and of grace. And so this morning, if you have your Bible with you, or if you have an app on your phone, uh, we're in Acts chapter 4. Uh, we're going to look at, at what some of this transformation looks like in the lives of the followers of Jesus. So Acts chapter 4, uh, picking up in verse 32, it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. Let me see if I can get up. There we go. Um, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the seals, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And so what we see throughout Scripture is, is that God is shaping and molding people. 
He takes this most precious commodity of, of people, his creation, and he shapes us, he molds us to be more like himself. And as he does that, we're then shaped and molded to go out and help shape and mold the world. We go out as people who can make a difference. We see this right at the beginning. In Genesis 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And in John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so we have this incredible picture of, of right at the beginning, we have this combination of, of word and spirit, word and spirit. God speaks, his spirit moves, and creation happens. And it's this picture, it's this pattern that has unfolded throughout the centuries. God speaks, and now his spirit works in us. And we become a new creation. We become shaped. We take on the family likeness. It's what God has done for generations. In the scriptures, we uh, read about countless things that become part of our lives as followers of Jesus. Uh, between Genesis and Revelation, there's about 500 verses on prayer. Uh, so we know that prayer is a pretty important thing because if someone says something to you 500 times, they're trying to emphasize a point that we're going to be people who are walking with God and talking with God and hearing from God. This is part of what we do. And not quite the same number of times, but pretty close. Uh, there's the same number of verses roughly when it comes to talking about faith. And those two go hand in hand because what's the point in praying if we don't have faith that God will hear and will answer our prayers. But then uh, this morning, we're going to look at a, at a topic there's over 2,000 verses on. Does anyone want to have a guess? Anyone? Money. Sharp intake of breath. <laughs> Shuffle in seat. It's that morning in church. We're going to talk about, we're going to talk about money and, and the scriptures, they talk countless times about money. Let me tell you a few things about it. One out of, equates to approximately one out of every 10 verses in the New Testament deals with money. 16 of Jesus' 38 parables talked about our financial resource. And 25% of Jesus' teaching came back to money. And so for us, the, the irony is, if, could you imagine if as a church we, we spoke about money once a month? be a very small church, wouldn't it? And yet the irony is we'd be far more aligned with the teachings of Jesus. And yet because of the age we live in and cynicism, we would probably be questioned as to whether we're actually aligned with Jesus' ministry at all. And here's the great thing for, for the cynic in us, is that Jesus does all this teaching on money, but never takes up an offering. Never asks for anything. Never suggests that put a wee bit extra in the synagogue or get a horse and cart to take us out a little bit further. He teaches on money so many times and yet he never takes up an offering. Why? Because Jesus' desire in his ministry is to go after our hearts, not our actions. He wants to go after our hearts, not our actions because the fruit of a heart transformed leads to action. 
And so Jesus teaches on money. He teaches on resource because he knows that money can either weave its way into our story in a way that is toxic and destructive or in a way that is freeing and it is life-giving. And so as we approach the scriptures this morning, I guess my job is simply to go, well, what does, what does God's word say? And then from here for each of us to go away and let that combination of word and spirit work in our lives. Jesus' own words, he said this. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And I suppose for us, as we read these words, these infamous words from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, straight away, right out of the blocks, we hear those words, do not. It's like, oh, this is us being told. This is our instruction. This is what we've got to do. This is a thing, list of things that we shouldn't do. And, and yet we need to reframe exactly what Jesus is saying because Jesus is not saying, do not have treasure. Jesus' exact words are saying to us, lay up for yourselves treasure. Focus on treasure, but put it in the right place. This is a positive thing. Jesus wants us to store up treasure for ourselves. Jesus, in his teaching, is trying to save us from that spirit of anxiety, that spirit of control that we often want to have, to feel like we have got everything lined up. He's telling us to not store it in a way that we can control it or manipulate it or try and grow our own investment. It's where moth and rust and thieves destroy. And so in Jesus' words, he's reminding us that we control a whole lot less than we think we do. It's the reality. And for us this morning, I guess, uh, we find ourselves uh, between two places. We find ourselves between Ecclesiastes and Job. If you're not uh, familiar with those two stories in the Bible, in Ecclesiastes, we have Solomon, a trillionaire, a man with the most money and possession in the world, and he, he sets off on this experiment to try and pursue whatever satisfaction can be found on this earth. So he throws parties, and when he gets bored of those parties, those parties get bigger. He has lots of relationships. He starts building projects in this grand experiment of seeking out happiness in whatever can be found under the sun. He makes one conclusion. It's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. This is a trillionaire with all the resource that you can ever dream of, and yet he tells us that this is meaningless. But for us, we're not going to learn that lesson in this life. (laughs) We're, We're not trillionaires, if you are chat to Paul after. We have a building that we'd like to build. That would be amazing. But we're never going to have this, this degree of, of wealth. Uh, and so we find ourselves not living lives like Solomon, but equally on the flip side, we have, we have Job. Job who lost everything and found that God is enough. God is enough. Solomon pursuing whatever he could find and and satisfying the human soul with stuff. And yet Job, who sits with nothing and says, God is everything. And so this is the space that we find ourselves in. 
we'll likely never live either of those two stories. And so the risk is that we start to live in this story that says, well, well, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. There's not enough money in this earth to keep us alive forever. There's not enough money in this earth to secure peace and, and happiness in our life for the rest of our lives. And so Jesus' concern isn't that we shouldn't pursue treasure, but he wants us to pursue it in the right way. He wants us to pursue it where it will last. Because here's the thing, our, our stuff has a way of transforming our concerns subtly over time if it's left unchecked. Let me give you an example. Uh, I owned a car once. Most blokes will now go, ah. That car, that car. I owned a Volkswagen Golf. It was beautiful. It was, it was gray, which you could say is, is a very boring color, but it was gunmetal gray. That's how you make it a cool color. And, and, and I owned that car. I bought that car. I'm not going to lie. I initially bought it because I knew they were reliable. It wouldn't cost me a huge amount of good miles to the gallon. Parts were really easy to come by. And yet then I started to realize little things about that car, like the fact that the previous owner had tuned the engine. It was a nice car. And, and it started to become, if I'm honest, this little thing where it would get cleaned, it would get washed. Even when it was clean, it would still get cleaned, it would still get washed. And, and then there came this moment uh, where my dad turned around to me. He was selling his car, and he was like, Johnny, they're, they're wiping my eye with this seal. Do you want to buy my car off me? It's the car I drive today. It's the ultimate family wagon. And so it was this moment of head over heart. So I had to give up the golf. But incredible husband that I am. It could not leave the family. And so Laura, we traded in her car, we sold it on, and she got the golf. And even though it was hers, let's be honest, it was never hers. It was still, it was still mine. I was still the one that cleaned it. I was still the one that looked after it. Uh, this is a genuine post from Facebook where I had devoted uh, a day of my life to restoring the headlights because they had oxidized. On the left, you can see them all fogged up. I spent way too much of my day making those headlights look spectacular. This was the car. About seven hours after this, I got a phone call from Laura. I've crashed the car. <laughs> Are you okay? Yes, I'm okay. Are the other people okay? What other people? <laughs> what have you crashed into? A house. <laughs> now for clarity, Laura would like me to point out she grazed the house, but still a house, an immovable object that she managed to drive into. This gash up the side of the gulf, I wept and I wept and I wept. I was like, what? I should never have trusted you. And so, <laughs> and very quickly in those moments, you, you check your heart. You check your heart because your stuff starts to take on way too much significance. Uh, about six months later, that Volkswagen Golf blew up in spectacular style, and I sold it to a scrapyard on the hard shoulder of the A8, and I've never been more glad to get rid of something, because it starts to consume you. It starts to take over. It starts to take our interests. It starts to become the thing that our heart runs after, and yet for us, the question this morning is, do we have stuff, or does our stuff have us? That's a really important question for us to ask, because we live in a world consumed by stuff. 
And if we're not careful, we can become consumed by it as well. And so Jesus to that tells us, invest in heaven. So what does that look like? Very quickly, uh, let me run through a few verses. Genesis 14, a uh, story where Abraham uh, takes a tenth of what he has and hands it over to Melchizedek. This first kind of record that we have in the Bible of a tithe. Then we go on into Exodus and Numbers, and as God is starting to set out some of the parameters of the relationship that he wants his people to have, this concept of tithe starts to become a repeated it starts to become that we give a tenth of our first fruits. We give a tenth of what we have at the beginning, not at the end, to show God that we love him, to show that we live a life of dependence for him. And then the question becomes, well, does that tithe, is that a New Testament thing? Uh, well, in Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says this. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And so here Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, these people who are so linear in their thinking, who are so just tell me what I have to do, that before they would come out to church on a Sunday morning, they'd pick up a bit of oregano, they'd pick up a bit of paprika. Could you imagine if our offering plate contained those things this morning? You know you're deeply religious when you're tithing from your spice rack. And yet what Jesus says, please don't tithe from your spice rack. Um, but you know that what Jesus says is you should have not neglected the more important things. But you should have done both. Law, justice, and faith, or law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should practice them both. And then we see in this brilliant story of Zacchaeus, this ultimate transformation of greed to generosity. This guy who wants to sit in the fringes, sit in the margins, just catch a glimpse of Jesus. And before he knows it, Jesus makes him the center of the story. He draws all the focus and attention on to him. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. We see something incredible in Zacchaeus' life here. This moment of transformation as he receives this relationship with Jesus, as he's invited into this place of belonging, and then as he looks out and as he sees that it's, it's his reputation that's rubbing off on Jesus. That people are looking at Jesus going, really? You associate with people like him? It's in this moment that Zacchaeus' heart is changed. It's transformed. He turns from being one of the greediest people around, a friend of the enemy, to being a friend of everyone, a friend of God. As he reaches out and he goes, I want to help. I want to take what I've got. I want to give it away. Because that reflects on Jesus. A difficult question for us this morning been asking myself this one this week as I've been putting thoughts together. If the world looked in on only our bank statements, would they see the signature of Jesus? Would they see the hand of God at work in our lives through our generosity, through what we invest in, through building up the kingdom of God, through investing in the kingdom of God. And that brings us to today and our passage today. After the Holy Spirit uh, falls at Pentecost, we find that this, this tithe, this concept of the tithe sort of disappears, but it kind of 
just appears in different form. It becomes this radical generosity. We read about it this morning in Acts 4. It's mentioned previously in Acts 2. It says they sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Can you imagine if you went home, got home from work tomorrow, your neighbor's house is up for sale, for sale thing, up in the front of the house. Probably like most of us, curious, nip over, oh, what's going on, where are you moving to? What would happen if your neighbor turned around and said, well, actually, you know, we've, we've some friends, uh, they've fallen in really hard times, lost their job, and they've been really struggling to get by, and so you know, we feel really convicted, we feel that the thing that we've got to do is put our house up for sale and try and get it sold, and we're going to downsize, we're going to move somewhere a little bit smaller, we don't need all this, and, and we're going to take a little bit of what we've got, and we're, gonna, we're just going to give it to them, we're going to bless them, we're going to care for them. I don't know about you, I'd be standing having a chat with my neighbor going, crazy. This just doesn't sound normal. This doesn't sound like a normal practice. And yet this is exactly what was happening in the early church. As they looked out, they saw that all of this is temporary. And everyone around them were brothers and sisters. They were family. And in family, you treat each of your kids the same, right? And so someone who has and someone doesn't, well, then you take a bit of what you have and you share it with them. It was this that defined the church. There were no social services in Rome. The government weren't doing anything to look after people. But this was never given to the government. This was given to the church. This was given to the bride. It's our birthright to bless. It's our birthright to look out, see a world in need, and respond as followers of Jesus. So what does that mean for us today as we finish? The challenge for us today is that there's a, a story that is being presented to us every single day about what the good life is, what it looks like. It's in every TV ad that we watch, it's in every newspaper or magazine that we read, it's in every news feed that we flick through. Uh, it was on this uh, particular billboard, uh, Jackie, if you don't mind clicking on this, I drove past this one just yesterday, it's time to own it. It's this mantra of the world. Let's just buy more. Let's just fill this void with more and more stuff. And so the story that the world tells us, it's about comfort. It's about self-indulgence. It's the good life. And Jesus says, if you'll be generous with that, you'll discover what it truly means to be alive. You'll discover what life is really all about. And so I guess the big question uh, that I found myself asking myself this week and, and each of us asked the same is, do I have the capacity to bless? What capacity has God given me? And so that starts to inform our conversations. We look at our finances, we look at our choices. For some of us, that means that the next time we look at the mortgage, we go, I'm not going to max it out till I'm 75. Or the next time we're thinking about buying a car, we step back and go, you know what? This one's got a bit longer in it. As Jesus starts to shape us, it shapes our decisions and it starts to grow our capacity to be a blessing to others. It is not a sin to enjoy good things. Please hear that. The Psalms are full of rejoicing about what God has given us. It's not that we're not meant to own things that we enjoy. It's that we aren't meant to be owned by enjoyment. And so for us this morning, for some of us, it might be how much we spend on coffee. Some people are like, don't you dare. <laughs> it's none of your business. 
But, but yet, if it's a couple of cups a day, that, that builds up, that builds up. What are the choices that we make? It's in the big things, it's in the little things. And so the challenge that I want to leave with you this morning, all we've done is tried to open the word. See, what is God's heart for us to know when it comes to stuff and our possessions and money? And so the challenge for us this morning, if you're married and you're here this morning, find some space this week to have a conversation around your finances. Ask yourselves the question, are we living generously like God would have us do? If you're single, meet with a friend or a couple of friends that you know and trust, who have a bit of wisdom, a bit of discernment, a relationship with Jesus. Sit down and have that same conversation because these sorts of conversations bring transformation in the midst of community. And the important thing and the only thing that I ask you to do is don't let either of you be the voice of God in that conversation because it's so easy for us to go, well, that was good, but that was really for them. What is God speaking to us? To open ourselves to him, his word, his spirit working in us as we are transformed, as we as a church want to see a kingdom impact, as we want to see Carrick Fergus transformed, as we want to see the world transformed. We invest in the only thing that we can ever take to heaven with us, people. It's what we do. It's who we are. And there's a world that so desperately needs to see Jesus, and so often the world sees it in the midst of simple acts of kindness. Thursday, three weeks ago, Gematu got his bed. Friday morning after assembly, Gematu walks up to me, tears in his eyes, tears in his eyes. I'm like, who said something to you? What did they do? And I got down with him, and, and Brooke, our director, he sits down as well. He's like, what's wrong? He said, nothing's wrong. He said, one word, my oromo stretches this far. He said, Galatoma, thank you, thank you. He said, I've just had an incredible night's sleep, and it's these acts of kindness that open up the conversation. It's these acts of kindness that show the world what we also want to tell the world, that they are loved and that are cared for. It's in those moments that we get to tell people about a generous God. We get to point them to a friend called Jesus and a life of hope that will never end. And so for us, may we go from here as people who are driven to invest in treasure, but in the right place, in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, this is one of those areas where we run so uh, counter to the world, where your heart uh, is so different to uh, the hopes and dreams and aspirations of a society. God, we thank you uh, here and now for what you have given us, for what you have blessed us with. Father, we thank you that we live uh, often not having the same struggles and worries as the vast majority of people on this planet. But God, we thank you that you have given not to simply enhance our lives or for our lives to tell a better story, but for us to use what we've got to tell people about your story. Through simple acts of generosity and kindness that we as a church would be seen to be different that our impact would ripple from here, that it would go to the neighborhoods, to the nations, that it would reach across the garden fence and across to the other side of the world. As we bless people, as we care for people, 
as we introduce people to a generous God, a God so generous that you would give us Jesus as our friend and as our Savior. And so, God, as we go from here, as we've looked at your word, God, would your spirit work in us and through us, challenge us, change us, convict us. God, help us to see the part that we can play through our small, insignificant actions in your incredible story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.